They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators can't make a breakthrough in that time, their chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if they don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours? Or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 36, The Missing Years. Firstly, thank you everyone for your patience over the course of the last few weeks. I've been trying to juggle lots of things to make sure I've got time for everything I want to do in 2023. Obviously, the investigation into Fred is very dear to my heart, so it will always be a major priority. But I've got to factor in work and all the other things that I want to do in the course of next year. Now, I think I've got that balance about right now. So you can look forward to regular podcasts on the Fred investigation going forward throughout the next year. That's a promise. Now, essentially, our current thinking on this is that there are four realistic strands to focus on. And I think their plausibility is in this order. Firstly, Fred was the victim of an assassination. Fred was on the wrong side of someone else's politics. He may well have come from Central European origin. This aligns with the lack of traceability, the ring, the dentistry, even the Kun family fleeing the scene in late 1969. It even fits in with this strange police investigation that never quite was a proper investigation. Secondly, a sexual encounter that led to Fred's death, either accidentally or intentionally. Thirdly, and this may fit in with number two, Anthony Hardy, the killer in the village. We know that's a big thing. Windshill is not a big place. And we know that someone who was living there at the time went on to kill many people. We can't ignore that. And the other thing we can't ignore, number four, is the Mr. A scenario. Because we have a man, someone who's contacted us and contacted the police, who's told them the whole story of how Mr. A killed this man, why he killed him, when he killed him, where he killed him, how he killed him. Now, to ignore that completely would be wrong. Essentially, it's a confession. We just haven't been able to prove that that confession is true. It might be the answer. So they are our four strands. So... Our job in the course of the next few episodes is to try to move each one of those a little bit further forward. Firstly, let's think about this political assassination, this execution option. It seems really far-fetched for a tiny village on the edge of a small town in the middle of the UK at the end of the 1960s. But at the end of the 1960s, there was a lot going on politically there was considerable political tension around the world. And remember, when we spoke to the forensic scenes of crimes officer who had personally removed Fred from his early grave, he had no qualms about calling it an execution, and he was an expert in that field. 
So what is it about Fred's body and the way it was found and the way it was positioned that makes us think this could be a reasonable explanation? Well, firstly, the position of the body, kneeling, tied, almost expecting a bullet in the back of the head. Now, there was no bullet in the back of the head. He was killed using a different method. But he was kneeling and tied. And also, the inability to trace the body. Nobody missed him. When I've read other examples of when spies or people like that are found dead, often the labels and the identifying information are removed from the body. With Fred, they went one better. Virtually all of his clothes were removed, presumably to make identification impossible. There were no injuries. Now, that suggests accidental death, or does it suggest the work of a consummate professional? leaving absolutely no evidence of a murder. The ring on the right hand wedding ring finger, the dentistry, all of those things kind of imply someone from a different country who's come over here, fallen foul of someone else and been killed. Remember also, the skull seems to come from the Central European origin. But what global conflicts could lead to the death of a man in Windshill. Well, I can think of about three that was definitely leading to the deaths of people at the time, and every one of those people that was killed would have been found somewhere. The first one is that the Cold War was frozen. At its most frozen, the Soviet bloc had agents deeply embedded in the UK, very normal people, as sleeper agents who had been here for decades. The history books of the Cold War are filled with them. And that's only the ones we know about. There would have been 10 times more we never found out about. Secondly, Northern Ireland. The troubles were about to explode. The provisional IRA emerged in late 1969 with the express purpose of bringing about a violent end to British rule in Northern Ireland. Now, we think Fred died 1969-1970, very early on in that conflict, but they would have needed arms. There would have been undercover activities on both sides taking place. Was that an explanation for how Fred met his death? And thirdly, 1968, we know that Czechoslovakia had been in flames, the crushing of the Prague Spring. That had driven tens of thousands of Czechoslovak people over to the UK. All that was very, very recent at the time of Fred's death. Once communism had reasserted itself in Czechoslovakia in 1969, were there some scores to settle? Were there some people that had fled to the UK who had to be eliminated? Maybe they knew too much. Were they tracked down and taken care of? So let's focus on the first of those reasons. The Cold War, espionage, sleeper agents, infiltration, secrets, spies, the elimination of agents. It's a long time ago now, so it's worth a short history lesson. After the Second World War, an Iron Curtain, as Churchill called it, fell between Soviet Russian-controlled Eastern Europe and the West, the NATO countries. These were the superpowers at deadly odds with each other. And more than once, 
that nearly cost all of us our existence. Now, the period between 1945 and 1990 wasn't consistent. There were periods of what they called détente, when the superpowers were slightly friendlier towards each other. But there were periods, long periods, of icy isolation, particularly between 1950 and 1980. This was the classic period of James Bond, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, of Kim Philby, Burgess and McLean. There was a nuclear arms race. Each side needed to know what the other side was doing, at any cost, and they went to extraordinary lengths to do so. This is exactly the period we're working in. The whole of the Fred story is set in this period. Let me give you a real example. I'll tell you about a family, Peter and Helen Kroger. They were a happily married, middle-class couple who moved into 45 Cranley Drive, Ryslip, near London, in 1954. A humdrum existence in the leafy suburbs in the home counties. Except it wasn't. They were sleeper agents. Real names, Maurice Cohen and Leontine Petka, KGB agents, undercover as antiquarian book dealers. But their house, 45 Cranley Drive, was full of hidden equipment for espionage, cameras, dark rooms, antennae that looped around the attic used for transmissions to Moscow. And for seven years, absolutely no one suspected a thing. They were only discovered as part of the Portland spy ring, which had penetrated the underwater weapons establishment, submarines, on the south coast of England. So why do I mention the Krogers? How does that fit into Fred theories? Well, the reason I mention it is because it is definitely true. We know from the testimonies of Russian spies who were turned by MI5 and MI6 that there were many people in the UK here for that specific purpose. Intelligence gathering for the other side, the Soviet bloc. So how does that feed into Fred though? Because if a spy was discovered, generally they just went through the normal court system and justice was served. However, if you were a threat to a spy, they couldn't turn to the justice system. They would need to take care of you without revealing themselves. That would be a very dangerous position to find yourself in. But for that to be relevant to Fred, Fred would need to have been in contact with a foreign agent in Burton. And now I'm about to take a big leap and it's just an idea, nothing more. And it's probably very unfair, but I need you to know how I'm thinking. And I'm gonna test this idea and see what happens. Was Frank Kuhn, the Hungarian miller, who left for Australia in 1969, involved in some way? Now, Frank troubles me. He really does. And the one thing that I keep coming back to is how did Frank get out of Soviet-controlled and occupied Hungary in the 1950s? 
We know that Frank was in the hands of the Russians at the end of the war in 1945. He'd been fighting on the German side and he was of military age. The Russians didn't take kindly to people that they came across who had been fighting against them, particularly remembering what the Germans and their allies had done in Russia. Now, Frank should have been shot on the spot, and if he wasn't, he should have been sent to a prisoner of war camp deep in Russia, from which the chances are he would never ever return again. But he wasn't. Because he could cut hair, they decided he could have a hairdresser in the local town or just leave. I don't think an enemy fighter, whatever uniform they were wearing, had those kind of choices if you fell into the hands of the Russians at the end of 1944. What we do know about Frank is that he was in the UK in 1953. That's when the first record appears of him applying for naturalisation in a place called Langley Mill, which is in Derbyshire. And that in itself is a bit weird because there weren't many Hungarians around at that point. Nearly all the Hungarians who ended up in the UK, they came after 1956, the Hungarian uprising. But before that, you couldn't just walk out of the Soviet bloc in 1953 and decide to come to the UK. Now, there were plenty of Eastern Europeans in the UK after the war. Poles who had fought for the Allies against Germany, who didn't want to go back to a Poland under Joseph Stalin. There were even German prisoners of war who stayed after the war. But Frank was neither. Somehow, he got out of the Soviet bloc and made his way to England, a country he had absolutely no previous connection to and couldn't speak the language. There's something about this that makes no sense to me. But there was only one way of taking this any further. I needed to know what happened in Frank's missing years, 1945 to 1953. And there was only one person who could help me with that, and she was in Australia. Thanks for downloading the podcast. I really appreciate it. And as this will probably be the last one before Christmas and New Year, I know I speak on behalf of both Joe and Ian when I say that everyone here at the podcast wishes you a very happy Christmas and a prosperous and healthy New Year. I hope 2022 was kind to you, and I hope 2023 will be even kinder. I rarely get a chance these days to look at the listener figures, but I did last week. And because there haven't been that many new podcasts recently, I thought they'd be really low. But I was astonished. 2,000 downloads a day. Far more than ever before. And that seems to have been going on day after day after day for quite a long time. And I don't really know why. Many new listeners seem to be from the USA, so I don't know if the podcast is featured somewhere, so I'd be interested to hear from any new listeners where they heard about it. It may have been over Thanksgiving dinner as it got passed around, but I'm intrigued. And to all our new listeners, and it looks like there are quite a few, welcome to the family. You can contact me by email at fredtheheadpodcast at gmail.com. I always read those emails. I always reply promptly. And if you haven't already, join the Facebook group run by Neil DeVille. Who was Fred the Head? Easy to find. One final thing, and I hope you don't mind me mentioning it, and it won't be for everyone. But one of the things I've always wanted to do was a regular radio programme. 
and from January I'm going to be able to do that with Ian. It's not investigative so it really won't be for everyone. It's just a normal music, chat, guests, competition show. But it's fun. A distraction, sometimes a welcome distraction from life's slings and arrows. It's for two hours every week. It's going to be called Something's Brewing and there's a Facebook page called Something's Brewing Radio Show. It will be on Microbrew Radio and I'll put a link on the Something's Brewing Radio Show Facebook page when that gets released. But it will be every week from January. But let's get back to Fred and Frank and Zoe. Hello Zoe, it's Ken in England. Ken Davis. Oh, hi, hi. Developments have you had? Have you found anything else out? Yeah, bits and bobs. Bits and bobs. And I wanted just to kind of run a few of these kind of things past you really. And I'm increasingly thinking this was an assassination. It was a... uh, This person was killed because either they knew too much about something or were on the wrong side of some of the, someone else's politics. It's too, much, it's too much about it in terms of the way he was killed, the lack of any identifiers with the body, uh, the execution... It's almost a professional feel about it, doesn't it? Yeah. The, the, you know, he's got his, his arms tied behind his back. He's kind of kneeling position. You'd almost expect a bullet in the back of the head, but there isn't a bullet in the back of the head. He's, he's killed without any wounds given, provided. You know, he's probably suffocated. Uh, but he's kneeling down in front of him. It's got all the hallmarks of a kind of execution. Murder weapon right, running right around the island, haven't you? The man could have been drowned. Yes, he could have been drowned. I think that's the most likely thing. Um, bearing, bearing in mind that there don't seem to be any obvious marks on the body um, or even on the skeleton. I assume the skeleton's been microscopically examined and knife uh, marks and things like that would show up. There are no marks at the time when it was when it was investigated by the forensic scientists. Yeah. There, there were no marks, no evidence of any wounds at all. Yeah. yeah, well it just seems to me that since there's all that river running all around the place that that's probably the most likely way that the person was killed. There's definitely that possibility. That is, a, that is definitely a possibility. It could have been accidental drowning. It could have been, it could have been, but then I don't think you'd get the tying up, taking away all the clothes. You might if, if, if the people were engaged in something which at the time was frowned upon. Associate yourself, if, if, you were, if you were a gentleman, say, tripped with this person um, and they drowned somehow, um, you might not want to be publicly associated with them because of your position in society. And, and there's always that, that, that whole thing about some, some people use asphyxiation as a, an aphrodisiac. Yes, correct. There is that. There is definitely that around. And, and we, mustn't, we definitely mustn't ignore that. And I am focusing most on the first scenario, this idea that, that he, they were killed for, well, reasons unknown, but, but clearly because they, uh, they either knew too much or they were on the wrong side of someone else's politics in some way. There was a lot going on in the world which caused people to get killed. I started listening to the news on the radio in about 65. Someone gave me a transistor radio for Christmas. 
Yeah. And I listened to the news and I started, started to follow current affairs. Um, just because you know, I, I wanted to understand what the grown-ups were doing to the world. Yeah. Seeing that they were running the right way. Yeah. And um, yeah, you're right. There were a, a lot of changes. I mean, there was all that stuff going on in South Africa. Yeah. There was things on Ryan Curtin. Yeah. Um, Yugoslavia. Yeah. This is the Cold War at its coldest as well. I mean, there were spies around. They were. The, we had infiltrated people in in the Soviet bloc and the Soviet bloc had infiltrated people in the UK. Now there's absolutely no question about that. Uh, this was the height of kind of Brezhnev and uh, you know, pre-Nixon. It was, it was a cold, cold war at that time and, and there might have been something going on there because, you know, around Derby and Burton, there are, you know, there are facilities. You know, Rolls-Royce had a facility, or still does have a facility, uh, which is highly, you know, secretive and stuff like that. So. And at the moment, that's the kind of path I'm following, simply because of the nature of the body, how it was killed, how it was stripped of identifiers, how it was unidentified, all that kind of stuff, I think, kind of points to that at the moment. So I'm interested in, well, I'm interested in your dad, really, and I don't mean I'm interested in your dad because I think he was involved in it, but I'm interested in your dad because... He was around and he was clearly someone from Central Europe. He was influential. My, my dad was, was you know, the inveterate Schutterbug and a couple of times a month he'd go off into his dark room and he'd, um, he, he, sometimes he only made contact prints. Yeah. Um, but um, most of the time he, he'd make you know, small photographs mostly because the, the paper's expensive. Or just about all of it's in black and white because he, he never ever got all the equipment to develop colour photos. Yeah. So he could develop it himself, but he was only up for the film and black and white film wasn't so expensive anyway. So he had his own dark room, what, in the house? Uh, the bathroom. He, he built um, a shutter for the bathroom window, which wasn't particularly large, uh -huh. um, and some... Um, stuff around the door so that so that, that blocked out the light and then he had a little red lamp in there yeah uh, he had his trays he used to he set up a um sort of like a a rack on the bathtub and then used all used that to put all his some um, photographic trays like the, the trays that he had all his solutions in yeah uh and then um, he had the enlarger um which he used to sit on top of the toilet That was presumably from a time before he came to the UK. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, yeah. I wouldn't mind talking a bit more about that. So, so what kind of camera did he have? Um, he had four or five different cameras. There was a Leitner. There was a Russian one. I can't remember the name of. Um, all SLRs mostly. Uh, yeah. He, he did have a couple of smallish cameras. 
They also have big lenses and things like that, some of which I've retained. And your dad's story is a really interesting one, a really interesting one. Obviously, if I remember it correctly, he was captured, essentially, by the Russians, wasn't he? Uh, probably. Yeah, he was captured. No, he, he, he ran away from the, from the um, Hungarian Air Force after they, they got taken over by the Luftwaffe. So what year would that would have been? Was that early, really early in the war, or was that, was that late towards the back, towards, you know, 45? That was towards the end of the war. So 44, yeah, I know, I know they, were, they were halfway through Hungary, the Russians were halfway through Hungary by the end of 44. Yeah, the Germans took over where my dad was. Where, um, what, do you know where that was? I don't, you know. It, look, it's, it was probably around Budapest somewhere because Kopeshwar's not that far from there and that's where, he, that's where he lived. But he could have been posted somewhere else. I don't, even if he told me, I don't think I remember. But anyway, wherever it was, the Germans took the place over and he ended up with a German commandant and he stopped him one night and he ah. left the next morning. And, um, yeah, so he, so he left and wandered through and it must have been summertime because yeah. he was eating raw apples. They weren't ripe yet, mm. but that was all he could find. So he was going, obviously, through um, a, a farming area mm. and uh, hiding in ditches and stuff like that. And one night, the, the ditch that he was hiding in um, he, he fell asleep and the next morning he woke up and he was surrounded by Russians. Russians. How old do you think he would have been at that point? Um, 45, he would have been 25. Right, okay. He was born in 1920. So, presumably, he'd been in the Hungarian Air Force from pretty much the start of the war then, because he would have been 19 oh, in 39. Yeah, yeah well, he, he said, you know, if, if the war's there, then basically what you've got to do is get yourself the best job you can. And initially he was just a, a, just a normal pilot. Uh-huh. But unfortunately he was too good with the gun. Mm. So he ended up at the back end of the plane um, shooting at the, at the people following them. And presumably though he would have been shooting at Russians. Because the only... Presumably if he's in the Hungarian Air Force... Yeah, he was shooting at Russians. He was shooting at the same guys who he ended up making friends with at the end of the war. Well, this is the interesting thing to me, because, like you, I know a little bit about the, that period, and, and my dad was fighting it, in it at the same time, uh, oddly enough, uh, in a different part of the world. But most, most prisoners of war, or people that the Russians came across who had been fighting, of fighting age, let's say, either were killed on the spot by the Russians because of what the Germans, not the Hungarians, what the Germans had done in Russia, or they were trooped off to a gulag somewhere in the steppes and never, ever seen again. There was a Russian man, I think he was one of the captains in, the, in this army, one of the first people that my dad talked to, who spoke Hungarian. And so my dad was able to say to him, the reason I'm on the run is because I, because I punched out the German commandant because he was an asshole. Right. And they that was really funny, because um, especially the way my dad told it, he told it, mm. told that story really well. Mm. Um, and, uh, and they all roared with laughter and said, yeah, yeah, you're a great guy, no worries, you're a mate of ours, you know, you're fighting on our side, because even though he was conscripted into the German Air Force, he didn't want to be there, he didn't mm. like them, and mm. he ended up punching his way out. <laughs> so they said, yeah, be our mate. So, he was that sort of guy, got people and started talking to them. He seemed to just tune into them and say exactly 
much. He would he would watch people's faces and see their reactions to different things that he said, and then use their reactions to frame what he was going to say next. So he, at that point, he didn't speak Russian. He didn't speak any other languages. He spoke Hungarian. No, he learnt within the first couple of weeks. He, he was you know up to conversational. Um, you know, yes, I, yes, I'd like a, a, a cup of soup or whatever it yeah. might be. It's around the start of forty-five. The war's not finished yet, presumably, because the, the Russians are going um, won't have reached Berlin by by then. He's under the care of the Russians, and they give him this weird choice, don't they? They say you can hang around here and set up a hairdresser's in the village where we are, or yeah. you can you can go. And so I've got that right. That was the kind of choice he was given. I think he was very lucky not to have got shot on the on site. So do I. Extremely lucky. But as as he said, you know, by the time he saw the Russians, he wasn't wearing any scrap of his uniform. Mm. What he did was everywhere he went, he like he went to um, like people's houses when they weren't there and stuff like that. And it's like he swapped his really good woolen jacket his uniform jacket to somebody's really scruffy oldest coat that was in the house mm. Mm. Um, and you know his good his good shirt for a horrible tatty tatty one with with holes in it and things mm. um, by the time he, he got there I mean he, he did do some stealing but he left better clothes behind than what what he took but by the time he got to the Russians he didn't look like a soldier of anybody yeah right because presumably before that he would have been in, he would have been well, German uniform as well, presumably. He walked with his, with his great coat and his boots and his hat yeah. um, and, his, and his canteen and all his stuff. Uh, but on his way away, whenever he came across a, a, an abandoned place, he swapped something over. Okay, okay, interesting. So, that was his way of, of saying, well, I haven't stolen because I've left them something better than what I've taken. He, he had this very strong moral view on things. Yeah, no, that that that, 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 that makes sense. That makes sense. So uh, I don't think he knew too many unsavoury people, but I did do think that he possibly knew people who knew unsavoury people. Yeah, yeah. Are you when you are you talking about then? Are you talking about when he was in the UK? In the UK, and even even back then, quite possibly too. So. So he's he's given this choice by the Russians, and he decides, well, I don't want to be a hairdresser in this tiny little village. I'm going to go and do my own thing. So how does that then progress? Because I can't imagine it would be either easy or safe just to be wandering around Eastern Europe. Oh, they put him on a plane. They put him on a plane. On a train. A train. To, to where? There was a train going somewhere with something or other, and it was it was going to a port. And my dad said, "Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll go on that one." And so they put him on the train. He he, um, he helped the the fellow the, the driver fellow. He helped shovel the coal into the boiler. So the Russians said, "Get on this train and then clear off." Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the the guy needed somebody to do shoveling because because the fellow that he had either wasn't there or was injured or whatever. I don't know. But anyway, Dad, Dad shoveled coal for about 150 miles. He's he's put on a train by the Russians and sent in what direction? Do you know, he's presumably sent east, presumably. Or, yeah, east it must be. Yeah, because the, the next country he ended up with 
was, I think, I think he ended up in Turkey. So he might, he must have ended up going down to the coast somewhere. Yeah, down Bulgaria. It took them three days to actually get there because there was checkpoints and stuff like that. But uh, Dad was staff on the train, so there was no problem. He also took the papers as well because he didn't have any papers, like the, the stuff that he had um, when, when he was in the army. He, he retained a couple of bits of, bits of paper with him, but like his, his um, military certificates and stuff like that, he left those behind. Probably a very wise choice. So, but the Russians had yeah, given him papers. The Russians presumably. Yeah, by the time the war ended and all this, all you know, the, the Russians were sort of starting to settle in or whatever it was that they did. Um, at the end of the war, um, my dad had worked his way up and he was in one of the bigger towns. And so he was, he was cutting hair for the generals and people like that by that time. Okay. Interesting. So pres presumably, so he'd got no papers, the Russians gave him papers and yeah. said, right, okay, you can clear off. Yeah. And, and, well, and, and it went to some port somewhere because the next thing he did was get on, got on a ship. Well, he would have had to have gone to a, a, he would have had to gone to somewhere under Russian control. So that presumably would have been Bulgaria and then from Bulgaria you can get across to Turkey from there on a boat. Yeah, I think Romania came in there somewhere too. Okay. Yeah, that would make sense. It's in the right area. So, so we're following we're following um, the journey Frank's taking. So he's he's probably he's going through probably Romania, Bulgaria, ends up in Turkey. Have I got that right? Yes. Yes. And this yes. is still presumably at the at the end of the end of the war. Great. So how long is he in Turkey for? Um, long enough to learn the language, basically wandered through through the place. He got a job with some people with a caravan and they went east. Bolts of cloth and barrels of oil, I think it was like you know, olive oil or something like that, going east. Right. And that would take him yeah. through through the Middle East? How he ended up, you know, um, working for some people with camels, I, I really don't know. But yeah, you know, he, he used to do stuff like that. Yeah, he sounds like he's he was pretty persuasive. He, he, he chatted to some people in a bar, maybe maybe you know, like he, he cut the barman's hair you know, or the publican's hair for mm. free, mm. Um, and and then set up in the corner, and people would buy him a drink and he'd cut their hair, or they'd buy him a meal and he'd cut their hair, mm. um, and. Usually somebody or other that night would say, oh, you can come home and sleep, sleep, sleep in my barn or, or, you know, I've got a spare bed in the, in the lofts or something. Mm -hmm. Just with people, you know, he was a personable young man. So it was that kind of process. So he was, and he ended up, did he end up in India? Yeah. Yeah. He got as far as China. China. On trip. Well, this, well, again, which is an odd, well, not odds, but, you know, China's it's communist then. He only got to the outskirts, basically. He okay. didn't get, get into, like, he, he, the biggest city he got into, I think, had about 5,000 people. Okay, okay, so he wasn't in the Beijing and places no, like that. He was just in the western part of China, but it was still China, and he learned, learned a little bit of um, Mandarin and, yeah. what's the other one, Cantonese. A fair yeah. bit of Cantonese and a little bit of Mandarin. Okay. 
Interesting. So, um, what he was doing all around the world collecting languages. Sounds like it, and collecting photographs because I think you were saying that he was. He had a camera, various cameras, all the way through because he, he often often managed to trade up his cameras. Um, and then somebody would steal his camera, so he had to start all over again. So, but but someone walking around Eastern Europe and and the Middle East and China with a camera. into his sock China. How does he get back to the UK, or not the UK, how does he get back to Europe? Because you were still probably seven years away from coming to the UK. He went south from China. Yeah. Um, on down, and he, and he went around the, the like, basically did, did a, a little frilly bit around the coast. Um, that was his fishing phase. Okay. And that was around the South China Sea then, presumably? Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
Yeah, one of these days what, I, what I'll have to do is look around where the Russians might have been and what, what sort of directions Dad could have been, where there were air bases and stuff like that. But So so just going back to these photos, so, so the photos he was taking on this camera, you've got photos from Romania, i.e. prior to Turkey, as well as the photographs post-Turkey. Well, uh, there's, there's one photograph I remember seeing that was him um, leading a, a row of camels. And that was on his way out of Turkey. That was actually just after the border. Uh -huh. And the guy that took the photograph was the guy at the border who went ahead so that the border was in the back of the border post was in the background of the thing to show that they'd come through the border without a problem. Interesting. And, and how would he get them developed then? Now, usually when you go into a, to a, um, a town, there'd be somebody in there, like if it was a town that was big enough to have a newspaper, there was somebody there that, that, that had a, um, a dark room. Yeah. So he finds himself in India on the way back to Europe. Have I, have I got that right? Yeah. And so, so what was the journey from there back to Europe? Well, as I remember, he got onto a boat and ended up in Norway. Right. And they stopped at various places on the way. I mean, they didn't just go all the way through. Yeah. Um, have enough water and stuff for that sort of thing. Yeah. He, he gets to Norway. Uh, have you any idea what year that is? Uh, I think we're up to about 48 or 9. Okay. Because the first record I have of him in the UK is 53, living in a place called Langley Mill which is in Derbyshire. I think, I think he came to England in 51. How, how did he get in? Oh, um, well, he applied to be, to be an immigrant. So he just landed at a port, presumably, Southampton or something, and said, I want to stay. Oh, no, this was actually somewhere, I think, in Belgium. Right. British Embassy. They wouldn't let him into the country until 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 he was uh, until he fitted their quota. They had openings for coal miners, and Dad said, "Oh, well, I can I can mine coal." Okay. No problem. Uh, I mean, he had no papers. Nobody else did either. But yeah, you know, who would say I'll be a coal miner if they didn't know how to do it? Because it's a pretty nasty, horrible, dangerous job. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, he didn't actually know how to mine coal at the time. But he ended up in Wales as a result of that. Yeah. And maybe you mentioned that, North Wales. Yeah, and, and so he became a coal miner. So... Um, and as he said, you know, digging, digging coal out of a coal mine is the same as digging dirt in a garden or rocks um, on the side of the road or whatever, you know. Digging is bloody digging. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, but, um, but in order to get here, to the UK, he first had to go to Belgium and get his papers and, and his application for uh, to come to the UK approved. So you reckon he came in 51, but between this kind of getting to Norway in 1949 and 1951, do you any idea what he was doing then? Yeah, well, he, he came back over land. Right. He went down through Lithuania and Estonia and all that, all that, that area. But that's all Soviet bloc though then. Isn't it? Well, he, still had, he still had his Soviet papers. Right. And yeah, you know, and he was in tiny, weeny little fishing villages, not great big places. 
Um, and the local local fellow, he was lucky if he could read properly, much less you know decipher the past or whatever it was that Dad, that Dad came out of um, out, out of Hungary with. So this is deep Cold War, this isn't it? In fifty one, fifty two, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia have been kind of taken over by Stalin. He wanders his way down through the Baltic countries, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, but then you come to East Germany. No, no, he, he got through from somewhere, from somewhere there um, all the way back out again. What would that be, Sweden, down, down underneath? Denmark. Denmark, Denmark, yeah, you're right. Yeah, Denmark. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there was some drink in Denmark that absolutely, it's the only thing he reckons that ever knocked him out completely. He got passed over in, in midstream from one fishing boat to another one. Um, and then he ended up, yeah, on, in northern Europe and, and then came back, came down through. But no, not East Germany. That journey gets him to Denmark, spends some time in Denmark, ends up in Belgium. Yeah. And I think he had an illegal landing in Scotland at one point. What's that about then? I remember hearing that bit once. Well, you see, sometimes fishing boats carry things that are not fish. Right. Go, go um, on. You got me intrigued now. Well, you know, like when you've got the Russians in charge, right? You know, when you're in Lithuania or somewhere like that, it's really hard to get something like Scotch whiskey. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. So we're talking. We're talking. We're talking contraband in that nature. Not. Oh, we're not oh. talking about dropping the dropping a nuclear spy off or anything yeah. like that. I'm putting together very little teensy-weensy snippets here. Um, just the odd word or the, or the odd, you know, something's on the TV and, and there's a knowing look. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure that this is what was going on. That's his timeline then from being, being caught by the Russians to being ending up essentially in 1951, six years later, as a coal miner in Wales. Yeah. Fascinating. So what... What languages did he end up speaking through that massive journey, do you reckon? Well, I, I never actually worked out, because he had a few words in, in probably 25 or 30 languages. Was he fluent in certain languages? Yes. What, what, what was he fluent in? They only spoke German with each other. Right. And did he pick that up in Hungary, or did he pick...? He picked that up in West Germany and in Austria. When was he there? Sometime when he was moving about in boats. But Germany and Austria, though, are kind of pretty landlocked, aren't they? they he must have been what, going down the Danube or something. You couldn't get to Austria by sea. That was somewhere after, after Norway and before, before France and Italy. He went to Italy as well. But, but you reckon that would have been the latter part of this 1945 to 1951 thing. You know, he goes over, clearly goes over to... China comes back to India, then ends up in Scandinavia, then goes back into Central Europe, and it would yeah. have been that time before he came to England. Yeah, I know a couple of times he, was, he, he did travel extensively behind the Iron Curtain after the war. I just don't know how he did that. Um, because he, 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 he went in isolated places. Yeah, but it's, I mean, this is... After, uh, even now, a lot of Europe is just forest and crap. Yeah, but you wouldn't um, want to be caught, though, anywhere, would you? Just wandering through Poland. Well, it, it wasn't a case of wandering. It would be a case of 
um, this guy knows a person here. Oh, you'd like to go there? Well, I know somebody who knows somebody who who lives there. Right. Right. Um, and so it wasn't it wasn't like he was a stranger. He would be introduced to the next person that that was his minder um, by the previous one. Right. Why was he so keen to get to England then? Because he didn't have any con kind of contact or kind of there was no previous connection to England at all, was there? Because he admired the king. Okay. He thought the king of England was the most noble monarch that was that was on the face of the earth. And then after the king, he admired the queen. He was not um, an overt monarchist. He didn't talk about it, but it was something that was very deep inside him. Um, and he felt that any country that had a king like that was the, the place that he wanted to live. I mean, that's been fascinating. I, I, I always wanted to get the proper timeline of your dad, really. That was a bit... I would say that I, I quite easily have things muddled and back to front. Uh, and there's so much about your dad I'm intrigued about. I mean, I don't know how it fits into this story. I've got a horrible feeling that, you know... you a victim. Yeah, I have too. And, and this is why I'm trying to piece together... He's so, this is why he's so instrumental in... Uh, in the story because I've got a feeling he knew the victim I'm, I don't mean he had anything to do with it but I just think he, he if this person's from Central Europe Eastern Europe in 1970 I've got a feeling he knew your dad yeah some way yeah, it's, I, think, I think it's quite likely the other thing honestly Zoe oh, the victim you may have known the perpetrator yeah so do I I also think it might have had something to do with why you left Because you would get, you were, I remember you telling me that is, you know, your dad applied to South Africa, Canada, New Zealand. They were very keen to leave. South Africa and my mother and her colour thing doesn't really match, does it? No, he was just keen to get away. He knew something terrible that had happened. That is, I, I guess that's possible. Um, because it was a bit of a rush job, wasn't it? I I don't remember us doing anything before um, the, the previous Christmas '68, the Christmas '68. Anything about emigrating, and we were here in '69. We left in September '69. I know. But then I don't know how long does it take to emigrate. Is is that I would have I would have thought you you write to whoever it was and say I want to emigrate to Australia, and they say okay, send you ten pounds here. Um, this this is the boat you're going on. I would imagine it would take a few three months or so but the, the interesting thing for me of course he'd applied to everywhere I remember you telling me that he'd applied to these different countries yeah and um, Canada South Africa I think it was the other things you mentioned now that sounds to me like someone for whatever reason just needed to get away to the other side of the world the one thing I wouldn't mind you thinking about is I'm starting to think that for some reason your dad needed to get you all away from there and that's why it all happened so quickly and I'm just wondering if, if, if just think about those years and if there's anything that came that you remember from those years that makes you think I'm looking for something scary or worrying and I'm yeah like, yeah really oh, that, that's not actually something I've ever really put my mind to I, I tend to focus on the happy wonderful time yeah of course but um, which is natural. All right, so you look after yourself. Thank you.
So who was Frank Kuhn? An extremely lucky, charming, displaced person, living on his wits and his skills to survive and move freely around the post-war world, including most of the Soviet bloc, was the more to Frank. For me, there's just too many places, too many borders crossed, too much freedom to roam. Travelling without a passport, just on Russian papers. I'm really not comfortable with that. 1945 wasn't today. The Russian army was filled with political commissars and battle-hardened troops with revenge in their hearts. Frank had spent the whole war killing Russians. Yes, he'd lost his uniform, but he was 25. He wasn't a child. The Russians would have known exactly what Frank would have been doing. I struggle with the idea that Frank bought his life for a haircut. And these cameras, these tiny, hidden, Russian-made and East German-made cameras that he happened to come across just as the war ended. And they stayed with him all his life. But funnily, the Russian-made camera was the only one missing when he died. And the cut-down film. Is that normal? People are passionate photographers. But I'm not sure he was before the war. But a hidden camera found crossing sensitive borders in 1945 and 1946 was liable to get you killed. Frank should have been killed many times. Because he was virtually in every Central European city with no passport, just these Russian papers. And something about that, at that time, just isn't right. Have you ever heard of the word legend in the espionage sense? Here's its definition. A legend is a claimed but false background and biography, usually supported by documents and memorised details. I think this story is Frank's legend. I'm sure he travelled to all of these places. I'm just not sure this is the real story of why he was in these places. At this point, I think Frank probably was involved in the political espionage world. I think the chances are quite high. Was he still involved in that when he got to the UK? Well, quite possibly. But one thing I am certain about is that there's a lot more to Frank Kuhn than meets the eye. Too much travel, particularly through areas where travel was impossible and deadly. Too many important places, Turkey, Austria, China, the Baltic states. All of these are centers of the espionage world in 1945 to 1950. But how does that link into Fred? I don't really know, but I think there's a good chance it does. I just don't know how. And of course, it's the speed of the exit from England to Australia that really rings the alarm bells for me. It's 20 years later. 
but he was spooked by something. I'm sure of that. And some people think it's unfair that I've got Frank in my sights again. But these are the questions we're going to have to ask if we're going to solve Fred. These are the chances I have to take. And our only allegiance is to Fred. And I don't mind asking the uncomfortable questions to get to the truth. So there's more to find out. A lot more. But that's for next time. So, until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.